0: This is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This episode, we conclude our reading and discussion of The Logic of Political Survival by Bruce Bueno de Mesquita, Alastair Smith, Randolph M. Siverson, and James D. Morrow. Okay, so... To review... uh, Just a broad overview of the framework and some of the key terms. Uh, the The underlying premise, this entire theory, is, of course, that the primary goal of any leaders remain in power. The components of any polity within like this game framework that they've set up is you have the selectorate which is those who choose a leader in government uh you have the sort of uh in the dictator's handbook they split this to include a nominal and real selectorate like the nominal would be any person who has some legal say in choosing the leader the real selectorate would be the group that actually chooses the leader and then along with the selectorate you have the winning coalition uh, the winning coalition is the group of essential supporters without whom the leader would be finished. Uh, another concept that comes into play, especially in this second half of the book, is affinity, uh, which is the idea that there are bonds between leaders and followers that can be used to anticipate each other's future loyalty. Uh, the key actors in any of this um, and a set of uh, similar t- terms that they use. So you have interchangeables, and they don't use this in this book, but it's Later sort of added to the overall theory of interchangeables who are nominal selectors, influentials who are real selectors, and essentials, which is another term for anybody in the winning coalition. Um, and the three essential decisions of any leader are one, to choose a tax rate that generates revenue and that influences how hard people work. Two, to spend the revenue in a manner designed to help remain in power, particularly by maintaining support among members of their winning coalition. And then three, to provide various mixes of private and public goods. Um, and so in this section where we pick up in Chapter 6, they talk, we get into a lot of questions about essentially war. That will that'll also come up, um, especially in 9 as well. And this section also covers broader, I guess, questions of what the incentives are of people who seek to overturn these systems and how things can sort of revert to normality. And it bumps into a lot of things like how these different systems interact and how what they call like small W systems. Their very existence is sometimes beneficial to large W systems. And it's in some ways it kind of... It doesn't bump into the base of their theory, but it bumps into a lot of their prescriptions for what to do.
1: Yeah, W being the uh, winning coalition, right?
0: Yeah, they use they use the term basically like uh, small winning co- small W. The W basically stands for winning coalition. So small winning coalition. And they use large winning coalition, and the size of the selectorate within that seems to be. In the way they run these scenarios, the size of the selectorate relative to the winning coalition seems to have more influence and in outcomes when the winning coalition is small than the other way around. Or maybe they just don't talk about the other way around as much uh, in this half of the book.
1: Yeah, I think overall, the really value of this framework comes out in the second half of the book probably more because they're doing a lot less setup. And you get to have more discussions that are like informed by the model, but you know, aren't actually formalized. The point of doing the formalization is to get to these discussions, more or less. And I probably should have, you know, took some elementary statistics before I went like (laughs) super balls deep into like proofs and shit, because there's you know not much to say about these proofs unless you're gonna like work through them like step by step. And you know, was that well was that a valid inference link?
0: I mean a lot of ways like the the broad takeaways of this like in many ways aren't that complicated they're basically just talking about what like broad incentives are and sort of as we discussed last time the theory does seem to work it seems to work better for explaining the dynamics of small w coalitions than it does of large w coalitions although it does account for it in some ways i think probably because large w coalitions there's got to be an added element of complexity there, um, not only just because you have more people, but because, um, yes, just because the coalition's big, doesn't mean there aren't patronage relationships taking place there. That there isn't, um, and there are later like elaborations on the theory help to account for this a little bit, but there aren't ways for with which the decisions being made by the selectorate can be sort of manipulated. So even though you have a large selectorate um, and even a large winning coalition, like who is and isn't in the winning coalition uh, isn't always as clear. Like it's it's um, like I don't know, like, for instance, last time I brought this article, we didn't actually use any of it, but about um, the situation in the villages where um, this base of like Trump supporters Who ran to basically undo like a property tax that was being essentially levied like against them, in order to pay for like the private development for like the corporations and the the um, the matrix of LLCs that create up the villages to basically pay for their development costs for them, right? So they run as Republicans. on this anti, you know, anti-tax hike platform and win, and then they're basically crushed by, like, you know, literally imprisoned by the state Republican machine, right? So the people that, you know, I feel like on paper within this framework would be listed as a part of like the Trump winning coalition or the DeSantis winning coalition, actually aren't and are completely expendable, right? Like they're complete, they're, they're, they they are actually the interchangeables, even though you know they seem like they would be part of that broader winning coalition, right? Um, well, the
1: the, the one um, thing that r- repeatedly occurs to me when reading this book is: is the U.S. as big of a winning coalition as they say it is? Like, especially at the end of the book, where they address the Electoral College specifically. Yeah, I don't know. It just leaves me wondering because a bunch of the generalizations about winning coalitions sometimes do and sometimes don't apply to the U.S.
0: Right, and like, but all of their. All the sort of like macroeconomic and like data that they pull says that like the U.S. is high on like every freedom and democracy index that they use, right? So we consistently come up like high on those lists. So it has to like with, but you know, like what's on paper doesn't capture like the entire story. Or you see later, I don't want to jump around too much, but later, um, like in chapter ten, they talk a lot about like the problems of like. Patronage networks, Uh, and they specifically use like Tammany Hall in the United States as an an example. Even though they start out with a more contemporary example in India, and the problems and how these patronage networks can sort of corrupt uh, or limit the democratic, the amount of like democracy or whatever within a within a system. But you know, in some ways, like the old patronage networks in the United States in some ways like delivered more for the you know their supporters than like what they were replaced with was just nothing like you're just completely cut out you get nothing you know um so before it's like they were yeah they were subject to some kind of patronage even though they were giving up their votes to these individuals in blocks who then accumulated like massive power by having command over all these voters but now that those people, now that those intermediaries are gone, there's just nothing and they get nothing, <laughs> you know. Um, is, and is that, does that really, like, there's also this presupposition that you, you could basically, ju- that they keep, and, you know, again, there is maybe some broader macroeconomic data here that, yes, if there's t- systems with, like, large winning coalitions Um, tend to be more economically prosperous and there definitely is like some feedback into that um, governmentally speaking like in broad strokes but when you sort of start to zoom in on the details a little bit it's that's where it gets a little it gets a little dicey and they well there's a lot of presumption of of um you know just a trajectory of like general growth i think one thing that they neglect i feel like this is something that I feel like probably – I haven't I haven't read much of his stuff, but I feel like Thomas Piketty probably started out with a similar kind of brain. And that's why he's so fascinated with inequality um, because we talked about this a little bit last time. But even in some of their examples, you see how they talk about these systems went into decline because of – well, look, the winning coalition shrank. But usually behind the shrinking of that winning coalition was some extra like economic forces that were basically driving – Um, inequality of outcomes for people prior to that and then it becomes solidified in the governmental structures and then further reinforced right and so that stuff sort of existing outside there's there's aspects in the way that they derive causation here that i think are sometimes more the outcomes of things that are happening externally if that's maybe that's a little too vague i don't know Oh, let's take one of their better examples, actually. So they talk about like uh, Afghanistan and the decision rather than to have, you know, like a large, a large W coalition system of like, I guess, modern, like parliamentary or presidential democratic systems. They basically retain these patronage networks through the, through the tribes. Right. And because and they argue, uh, as they argue later in the book, uh, that large W systems often the leaders of large W systems often prefer to in small, install uh, small winning coalition systems in places that they've conquered because the outcomes there are easier to control and more predictable. And so in Afghanistan, they make it sound like the reduction of these patronage networks is like on purpose for that reason. And it probably was. But, you know, you also just kind of see this, these sort of like patrimonial relationships in what we could call economically developed or modernizing countries, right? Because you can't just, const- you can't just put, like create a polity out of thin air. Like it has to come from something.
1: Anthropological point of view on this is that patronage is kind of like, if if you consider it not just like a super hierarchical form of patronage, patronage is just sort of a lot of human culture. It's like bringing your people along with you. A lot of people are, you know, quote patronage oriented. Like, meritocracy so-called is relatively rare because people have, like, communal bonds and shit.
0: Their theory accounts for this a little bit, but you see how when they get to the Hobbes Index later, they're like, and, you know, somehow all the countries that are low on the Hobbes Index, they're all in Africa. Crazy how that worked out, you know? (laughs) But it's like there's very clear, like, historical. and, And, like I said, the theory does talk pretty consistently about Okay, and this this does bear out across history how democracies tend to oppress other societies. <laughs> like, they tend to do imperialism.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think this gives you a very coherent explanation for why this would be the case. And it's well within, like, a liberal framework. It is exactly the kind of, like... Especially the comparative statics version of these theories are exactly the kind of, like... um economic reasoning that marx was critiquing the ancestor of (laughs) if you will like in the sense that this Mm -hmm. is like neoclassical economic uh techniques um i guess you know what game theory was originally developed for international relations so let's just say that let's say it was you know better in its like original sort of political context uh you could say um because i think you know this is a you know, on the, on a, on a political level. And, you know, a, this is not like, not about economics. You know, we're not talking about the rate of profit or the rate of exploitation, but so much Mm -hmm. of the networks of private goods and public goods are thought about in economic terms and, you know, are also dealt with in a neoclassical way. So if you have a problem with that, you know, you have to look at this theory carefully, but because, Overall, we're not dwelling too much in that realm. We're thinking about uh, power between you know individuals and how that stacks. Um, so many of the generalizations that come out of this theory that th- what you're able to predict about the world, um, regardless of how well we can like adjudicate the statistics, um, because you know again, like I like that they have that they're attempting to prove these abstract things in some respect or they're attempting to demonstrate that, you know, the evidence, if you construct it pretty rationally, like from what's available, um, you know, the evidence that, you know, it always doesn't contradict what they assume. And for the most part, you know, actually does conform. They're pretty scrupulous about saying when actually, you know, the the historical record's kind of all over the place on this one. (laughs) Yeah. Um, they're very good about declaring what their assumptions are and for the most part like i think a lot of the most egregious assumptions were probably in the last half of the book
0: i mean a lot of the refrain is basically large winning coalition systems produce are basically incentive the the leaders in large winning coalition sin, systems are incentivized to focus on the production of general public goods because their base of support is so wide that they, they, there's not enough for them to basically just do direct, like, bribing of cronies. Whereas people in small winning coalition systems can do that. They can basically provide just direct private benefits to the supporters. And you know there's, there's a graph that they come up to at one point where they basically argue that um, for the people within the winning coalition... As you expand the winning coalition, their quality of life goes down because the system is still operating on a logic of we're doing payouts to keep people's support. And there's less going, there's less for them to get because there's less to go around. Um, But as you basically add a larger and larger number to it, um, that curve is that valley basically turns around and the line starts to go up um, and it starts to, because you've, Arguably, you're having a society in which more is invested into public goods, so there's more flourishing to everybody and you just live in a better society, right? And that um, the developmental trap is getting stuck in that point where nobody who is in the winning coalition wants to let go of their privileges, even though it would be for the betterment of society as a whole. Now, again, there's often stuff happening outside of this uh, beyond just the whims of the people themselves in power. Uh, you know, you have countries that are, um, basically stuck being, uh, sources, uh, of extraction for larger countries, or they're only, uh, the only asset they have of comparative advantage on the world market is cheap labor or something like that. Or again, they're just literally subject to colonialism or neocolonialism where the people who are even allowed to be in power are going to be, uh, people who largely keep the country poor to their own private benefit um so you know because if it was simply just a matter of add more people to your coalition and then everything gets better well first of all it doesn't happen overnight because public goods take a while to yield anything you know it's this isn't uh you know sim city where you can just like add shit right (laughs) like there's a timeline that happens um but if it was also that simple, you know, you could have just taken this chart to Muammar Gaddafi and said, look, all, once you get here on the line, everything gets even better, you know, and then he'd be like, well, you know what? God damn it. You're right. <laughs> you but but
1: the, the, the model doesn't even assume that that's going to happen. I actually found this book politically way better than the dictator's handbook, the kinds of things that they try to advocate for in the dictator's handbook. Like uh, a, a lot of what they said about, you know, what people should do in reference to an analysis Uh, is is a lot more, it's a lot better thought out here. It's a little more conservative in its like ethical implications. And by that, I mean, they don't think just because game theory, I mean, they don't articulate in this book, I should say, that just because game theory says it, that means it's it's good and true, we should do it. What they articulate here is that when giving policy proposals, you need to factor in self-interest of the people involved. You can't just give economic proposals based on economic analysis. You have to do political economy in so many words, like when, when you're giving economic uh, policy advice. Now it's, you know, political economy, but not as we know it, Jim. Um, and certainly, like, the analysis of, like, why a country that, you know, is going to want to develop its own resources, wouldn't choose a democratic path. And like the, you know, the observance between the high levels of political oppression in uh, communist regimes that this, you know, book is talking about, um, like pretty frequently come, you know, it's sort of the go-to example. And fortunately they kind of realize it's the go-to example. And they like to compare communist societies with, you know, shocking uh, statistics and, and stuff to other stuff that people seem to like and don't have the same problem with, like uh, Singapore's level of political oppression. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Because, uh, you know, I, I guess one could certainly accuse this book of having like a you know, Cold War liberal bias or, or something. Based on their the way that they plug in the examples, and I think with regards to the United States, really like not. uh, It feels inarguable to me that they're overestimating the United States as like a status as like a simple large W country.
0: It does. It's not Cold War. It's post Cold War. Like this kind of is a product of their time, even if they were prescient prescient on a few different things. Um, And yes, I mean, I think they are actually overall pretty fair uh, to the communist regimes in that, yes, they also sort of point out that like the things that they get dinged for also exists in other places as well that, you know, bring it up makes people uncomfortable.
1: <laughs> well, and, and it's kind of um, in fitting in with their general theory, it's all the same shit and it, it's a spectrum more than it is, you know, or a true difference in type when mm-hmm. you really get down to it. That's the, that's the violence of abstraction going on here anyway. It's to say all these different types of government, you know, it's all the same shit. <laughs> it's all the same shit with the same assholes. It's, you know, literally formally true. Like you switch out those words. If you switch out the swear words for, you know, mathematical variables, like it, that's like the assumptions law. I, I do like that. When you, When you do get like a, I don't know, like a coherent understanding of what a political incentive structure is, Maybe I don't I don't know if people still think like this or believe this, but like it could like if you have one person in a room full of people who are some type of political agency. And let's just say for the sake of argument, they've cracked the code and they really know what they're doing. Um, They know how to do the thing. No one else knows how to do. Um, Maybe you could like you need like one person in the room to understand these things. they could at least like push back with some decent like I'm not saying every like every Marxist needs to know like how to do mathematical proofs you know but like it would be really useful if if every in like every room full of like radicals or whatever like one person would kind of get like a sort of sense of these um, generalizations that are are at least pretty um, uh, consistent and again can't adjudicate like the statistical test there but The fact that that this is, like, a coherent, an internally coherent with, like, a high high bar for internal coherence, like, mathematical logic is extremely, it's, like, it's fucking, it's exhausting. It's, like, it's inhumanly exhausting. Like, you know, most people think of it as pretty torturous. And I kind of like it in its element, but then when you, like, you know. When you look, when I am looking at some of these proofs, I just wish they were formatted differently because I am just like, ugh, oh, this is this is terrible. <laughs> this is so overwhelming. No,
0: I, th- well, I think you are right. Like, I think people, it would definitely be uh, very useful to people who you know want to look at the pro- look at undertake the project of trying to sort of like crack a new socialist electoralism to under really understand how it is that like politics works uh, around them, uh, particularly with regards to the incentive structures that are guiding politicians, uh, even in the United States. Um, like it's, it's, or
1: even even just how to interact with, you know, elected officials generally, like to mm -hmm. be able to predict their behavior, like, uh, right. Because we have a problem with that in political commentary, like, we're always surprised.
0: Uh, I guess a, a stray thought that this just kind of brought up. I was thinking about the whole like Biden debt ceiling thing or whatever, and how like f- for a second he seemed to think that like that, like capital was going to like back him up in these negotiations, <laughs> and they were just like, no, you have to administer austerity. Like that's your job. I don't know. It, it does seem like something. I don't know. This maybe maybe this is off topic. I but like. It, it feels like because, um, you know, like the old Joe Biden would never have done that before. He would never would have even tried. Right. But I think I think on some level they're starting to recognize that having a situation where basically the Republicans are basically permanently governing whether they win or not is destabilizing in some way or delegitimizing in some way.
1: They, they finally have caught up with all of us in the 90s that were like. Or, you know, the 2000s that were just, like, depressed. Like, you know, how come people didn't vote for John Kerry? I think they just figured out why people didn't vote for John Kerry. Right? Like, yeah. you, you can't, you, you have no muscle. You don't want, like, compare Al Gore to Trump. Mm-hmm. Just You know, people do this all the time. But I kind of wish Al Gore... <laughs> had gone a little more on the offensive when, and I remember feeling this way at the time, you know, like, like, like very many problems would not be solved by an Al Gore presidency, but at the very least, I, I rather doubt Al Gore would have went into Iraq. Like, I think he, he, I don't know, his incentives are different as like a right-wing president, like, Mm -hmm. or, you know, as a, as a center-right president instead of a hard-right president. (laughs) Um, Like, You know, if, if you really cared about all the things the fucking Al Gore said he cared about, like the environment, let's just put the environment up there. Right. Like, sure. The Gore versus Bush in the year 2000. That was the difference between saving the world and not. And my dog is having a nightmare, probably about what would have happened if uh, Al Gore <laughs> actually did win in the year 2000. Um,
0: I think he would put solar panels back up on the roof of the White House. For sure. I think,
1: I think he absolutely would have, and there would be yeah. a much bigger culture war around solar panels <laughs> instead of the weird, like, no, cause solar panels got like deculture culture Like yeah. they're, they're fine. Right wingers are fine with solar panels now. Um, I don't, I don't know what the fuck happened. Like,
0: well, it, they managed to appeal to homeowners cause you can stick them on your roof and make some money.
1: That's true. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't know. Do you think there's, like, a right-wing, like, think influencer on, like, you know, tube or, like, whatever third-party YouTube they're, like, forced onto? Uh, do you think someone's, like, popping Evola? Like, they're, like, Evola popular. There's, like, a right-wing bread tube, you know, where they, like, try to popularize, like, old theorists. Do you think there's, like, like a theorist that kind of thumps that, like, uh, Zoe Baker thumps Testa or something like that?
0: I mean, yeah. I mean, but that—that's that, that stuff's for like the real freaks, you know. Like, I don't think you know because more the the more like conservative, yeah, the conservative right wing stuff. It, there's more like overlapped the world of like, um, you know, just like hustle culture. I don't see how like Evola fits into that. You know, he's too like old world aristocrat. Like that's for that's for the people who I don't know. Like, that's for like the Rod Dreher types, you know what I mean? Or for like the Groiper types, or like, that's for like, it's not for like, I don't know, like Joe Rogan conservatives, if that makes sense.
1: He's the Bordiga of the right.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, any, I instead, I guess, instead anyway. of being more
1: Leninist than Lenin,
0: he's, you know, more, more fascist than fascism. Um, but yeah, I guess, I guess, I guess I just brought that up because it's like, it's it is. You know, it, it it was entirely predictable because, like, you know, capital doesn't really care about the, um, you know, stability of the regime necessarily. Like, they just want to get what they want. You know, so, it, but the fact that even like turned to them and looked for backup and then realized, oh yeah, we're here because any coalition that could have evacu- could have backed us up here. Was evacuated decades ago. <laughs> like that's why we're here. Like the Democrats, it seems like they constantly have to rediscover this. Yeah, they
1: institutionally um, can't hold on to that thought because it makes them. Well, it makes all leftists kind of upset. Honestly, like still,
0: like yeah. Well, and the but the fact that this is like the him fo- him preparing to fold is like shocking to anybody. I guess to me is a signal of just how like. I mean, I guess you, I guess there are. I guess you can't have too low of expectations to libs, but it's like, this is like liberal theory. You know what I mean? Like, like you, like you could learn this.
1: No, I mean, a lib could learn this. Um, We just have to remember that liberal scientism is posturing. It's a, it's the same thing that, you know, tankies are doing, but maybe just like a little less like self marginalizing. It's, uh, it's like a, you know, it's something in the marketplace of ideology or whatever you know the actual like meat and potatoes of interesting stuff going on in you know liberal game theory or something is i don't know there's tons of people who read the dictator's handbook or at least like watch the youtube video and get something very different out of it than i do Yeah, you know? <laughs> very different even you and i we got something different out of this because you know you're thinking more about socialist electoralism i'm thinking about how whatever social movements are to come are going to be able to predict how to deal with um, elected officials, which is, you know, those are both like perfectly valid reads of this. Like, you know, you learn the rules of the game or, you know, are the rules of this game kind of excluding what you want because of the, because of the interest structures. Because if you really take this model to the letter, like there's not much reason to believe that anything except for, you know, like a revolution will expand the electorate, And that's an explicit argument that they make.
0: No, yo, that's correct. Um there's a couple of different directions I guess we could go with this. Cuz we could talk about the Iraq War, which is an interesting um thing that maybe runs a bit, little bit. In some ways they you you can use this framework to predict the problems, but it also you could definitely see like in chapter 6 their sort of like um overestimation, you know, the cuz like in some ways like their description of or their argument that large W coalitions, when they go to war, they tend to like they tend to go all in, like they fucking go all out. Like, let me just um, let me just read some of the things they. So they observe, they observe that there's a tendency for democracies to not fight with one another. A tendency for right. That's the um, slightly more intelligent version of the uh, Thomas Friedman like no two McDonald's countries have ever fought. Uh, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, the smarter version is is. Um by zeve mouse uh democratic peace theory yeah like and this is the even smarter version of that in my opinion because it's all formal and shit.
0: they'd observe the tendency for democracies to fight with non-democracies with considerable regularity the tendency for democracies to emerge victorious from their wars when disputes do occur between democracies the tendency for them to use conflict management processes that reach peaceful settlements uh the tendency for democracies to experience fewer battle deaths and fight shorter wars when they initiate conflict the tendency for transitional democracies to be more likely than dem- than democracies to fight one another and the tendency for major power democracies to be more constrained to avoid wet war rather than less powerful democracies um well I and mean, the thing is like like especially with number 7 like some of that that's that's the atom bomb you know that's that's you know and you know, again, they they assume that democracy is like try harder in war efforts, but they're also assuming total mobilization, which is a kind of war that we've never seen before, or that we haven't seen since the forties. I should have meant to say, um, every war we've seen since has been, you know, at least in the part of the United States, like fairly half-assed, except when they would like, you know, throw a ton of hardware at the problem. You know, now they but they are right to observe the way that like larger democracies often have incentives to like oppress like smaller smaller countries and you know non-democracies
2: yeah
1: this is one of those examples in this book where like clearly u.s clearly the united states is like one of the models that people like measure democracy by i think this book makes that kind of clear at least implicitly Uh, but you know but on the other hand like there are a bunch of ways in which the united states the principles of of this book build into this mathematical logical edifice that you can start making, you know, generalizations upon. The United States doesn't always really behave like a democracy. One bit that really stood out to me is in chapter eight, the part about oppression, where it says that, you know, in a democracy, it's hard to get, it's hard to recruit people from the population, you know, to oppress other citizens. So, you know, on the one hand, okay, you know, if you're a real like Nazi and you want to join, a branch of the executive, you know, the, an executive branch of the government. You're probably going to do border pol- police, right? you probably do border patrol. Maybe if you're around a border state, I don't know. I think I would imagine, but that's kind of not enough for Americans. They can't just be like xenophobic outside. They are mm-hmm. obsessed with the enemy within as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's that...
1: pretty easy to find citizens that are willing to oppress other citizens. Or, or at the very least, maybe, maybe I'm showing my like American goggles and I don't know how bad things really are because mm-hmm. it's somehow so much worse than this place where every like fucking 30 seconds or someone someone runs into a school and like kills a bunch of people. Like I can't really, I'm, I'm kind of making fun of that because I guess, you know, as far as we're at the very least in like the middle when it comes to violence, we're not like all the way up top and, and like, the most violent places were not all the way in the bottom and in the in the least violent places.
0: We had like a racial caste system for, you know, it isn't even totally gone at this point. You know, like you can't really say that like about, you know, not, not to mention there's, you know, there used to be there's a bunch of people living here. When we got here, you know, like and that's kind of true about every every large W system that exists and a lot of small ones do like I don't. Um,
1: yeah, like, I, I, well, and I, I feel you know, like, in the spirit of universality, you know, the things that liberal humanists are always talking about, like you would include those people.
0: R- yeah. Well, that, that was something we touched on last time. Like some of their stuff, like they were just like, yeah, the U.S. has like a some ridiculously high number in the democracy index, like prior to the Civil War.
1: <laughs> it's one of the craziest things I've ever heard. I mean, I, I guess, you know, no, 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 like you you can't, you can't like rig the scale that bad. Like, but but, you know, you obviously can, um, any good game theory is going to be submerged in ideology. Like it's just going to be how it is. Like we can't, you can't just pick up things ready-made like without critiquing their assumptions, but you know, pick it up, check it out. Like, there's definitely things that we can use, like, you know, look through the scope for a little while.
0: Yeah. And you can see in some ways how this is like a product of its time as well, because um, they're like uh, they I mean, they, they they, in one section, I think they do a fairly um, they do, I think, a, make a fairly noble effort to make a case for immigration as a thing that will enhance a polity, because the more people you bring in, the more you're enhancing um, the size of the winning coalition. Uh, presumably if they're going to if there's a path them to get cut into a, like a winning coalition and that will also increase the number of public goods which by the way that also made me kind of think like it made me think of the whole myth where it's like those mexicans are coming here to get on welfare you know um like that may be this may be like the underlying kernel behind the sort of that sort of racist myth you know what i mean like like they will come they'll come here and they'll demand that the system produce public benefits that I'll pay for because I have money you know
1: yeah oh yeah they'll they'll come in here and flood those borders so they'll vote for democrats yeah and get welfare I mean like okay yeah like but you, you have to give them like a way to get in legally and get citizenship the book again infuriatingly is to see the United States is like a benchmark for like ease of voting like yeah. I, I just don't know in what world that's true. Like maybe I'm so sheltered, you know. I've I realize that things get to an absolute zero somewhere, but I just believe things are like better in some places in the United States. I, I have a hard time believing we're number one when it comes to ease of voting. I don't think that's true.
0: Well, and they literally go like, um, these differences in immigration rules provide a partial explanation for the rise in right wing xenophobic movements in Germany and France, but their relative absence in the United Kingdom, United States.
1: That's the sentence I'm thinking of, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, which, you know, I, maybe it could have seemed that way before ICE was created, which is when this book was written. Um, but that definitely, things were not trending uh, in a positive direction with that regard, unfortunately. Um, but, there, I mean, there, there are other things that, you know, they seem to basically, there are other predictions that they do get uh, well on. Like, there's one they basically predict that, contrary to what a lot of people seem to be convincing themselves at the time, that greater economic prosperity in China will not democratize their political system. Um, so, they, they they saw that out from where they were standing, and they were right. Let's see, they, what else? They, I mean, they, they, you can tell from the description of Afghanistan, they didn't see that going well. I was also going to say that, like Iraq, Iraq also turned out to be like a really good demonstration, um, similar to that example they talked about in Belgium. Where, okay, yeah, you do have like these large W coalition politics here, but you know, essentially, the way they conducted Iraq, it was essentially designed as like a giveaway to like Dick Cheney's friends and cronies, so much so that it literally sabotaged their own efforts to colonize that that country, right? <laughs> Like you I really don't
1: understand why people are so critical of the anti-Iraq wars. Like some of some of their like very vulgar blood for oil kind of stuff. I don't understand on some level. Like oh, people say it politically failed or whatever, but like at the very least, it was true. Like here we have mm-hmm. a game theoretical backing for how this was the case. Yeah, <laughs> like a uh, pretty pretty sensible way of understanding the world not a conspiracy theory has actors with interests involved. Like the, the mechanisms are well spelled out. This isn't in the realm of like functional speculation, you know, like we are talking about relationships that are fairly well documented. Um, there's, there's just all kinds of things about, or maybe not all kinds of things, but some like some central things about that weird pocket of American, you know, leftism from anti-globalization movement to Occupy. But we all kind of like look down on when we look back on because we're all socialists now. We all have dialectical materialism. It's very advanced. Um, But yeah, I don't know. I guess compared to that, like seeing this theory and how it performs makes me think about that time again. And, you know, at least that decent that particular bit that was you know decent maybe we've lost touch with
0: you can sort of see how and in some ways it still fits within this framework if we're looking at incentives where okay yes because there's voters they have to knit together this coalition of people who regularly vote which is i.e people with some property and old people right because everyone else has basically been cut out um but and so on some level, they're constrained on things domestically. they Like they couldn't just like end social security or whatever, you know, um, but they can they can they can go completely like buck wild, like globally and like oppress, you know, um, small, you know, smaller countries and, you know, um, smaller W systems and so forth. Like and so like Iraq becomes like this means through which. They can basically, and the military industrial complex also becomes this like self generating means through which they can build these, this like governmental like patronage system for supporters who then reward them through private benefits and back and forth. And they can basically use the existence of these um, small W coalition systems, which they themselves created in order to extract resources. They can use their very immoral nature and this supposed civilizing mission that the United States has to spread democracy abroad to periodically, you know, essentially justify the existence of all of these weapons and all this materials that they, that they have to build in order to keep this patronage system going. (laughs) Right. And so you see how at some level, when you start to get to like a macro level and how the American political system works, um, you know, you can see where you know, like, democracy has very little to do with any of this. And even though, like, on the all of their sort of macro economic and analytical uh, tables that they present that puts us high at the democracy index, even at the highest levels in, like, a big way, there are these very small W dynamics taking place even within it.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, like, okay, so part of it is that I think they just simply overestimate the United States's you know, how democratic it is. Like it, it clearly does have the, the, um, the large W. And they, they talk about elsewhere that large W and democracy are not identical. Like there is like a, you know, one of them is like a very formal technical thing and the other is a little more abstract, right? Like, you know, it's not a one-to-one correspondence informally speaking. Um, But that um, big W systems, what were we talking about?
0: I was I was um I was explaining to listeners how the military industrial complex works.
1: Yeah. There's one, yeah now
0: there's yeah. one candidate who's standing up to it. His name is Robert F. Kennedy. I'm sorry, Junior. Yeah, sorry. Like that. Um
1: no, that's cool. I mean I already forgot. Yeah, out. sorry,
0: all this all this talk about uh all this talk about the anti war era is turning me into Jimmy Dore. We <laughs> just need to bring we just need to bring back that libertarian left wing alliance, you know we got to get the paleocons, libertarians, the anarchists and the trade unions all back into a united front against uh against the war machine.
1: That was, that was part of its undoing of course. <laughs> Is that it like, you know, buddy yeah. dope. With...
0: Alex Jones, come on, put put down all that crazy talk. Let's let's get let's get back to work. Let's get back to doing the good work.
1: I mean, like if if I look, you know, if I think like It's amazing to me that people that think that left unity is a bad idea will then go on to try to do like unity with an even more like yeah sus group of people like to put it lightly yeah like like that's gonna work. I mean, yeah, I mean, mean, they're not being anti-political or or whatever. I was, I was, I was trying to make some point about big W coalitions. Oh yeah, the United States definitely fits the bill of a big W coalition when it comes to. You know public goods, and you know performance specifically with regards to economic growth being you know a big indicator of success or or being you know much more important than, um, than it is in some governments. And I guess I'm trying to tease apart whether that is because, again, governments uh, they differ more by like degree than by, you know, type in the sense that you're going to have these patrimonial dynamics throughout all governments. It's just that, you know, they're minimized in some of them or whether it's, you know, just more pronounced to me in the United States because the United States is just systematically distorted in its representation in this literature. I mean, the presence of Freedom House, you know, is a red flag. In a sense of the word, like, mm-hmm. um, and you wonder like what other kind of sources are drawing from, and you know what you don't know about the sources. Just the regular critical questions that you ask as a statistician or as a critical theorist, <laughs> like where are they, you know, where where they getting the stuff from. As a data scientist, I should say perhaps. I, I have a hard time like judging sometimes where the discrepancies in expectation are coming from in regards to that you know is it like a problem of the framework is it a problem of any kind of mathematical framework trying to interact with historical entities that are nonlinear, like inherently um or is it like
0: i think that's some of it you would have to you would have to model for imperialism you'd have to model basically for the coexistence of like these large democracies around like these smaller polities and, and like, or, or more economically weak, other country. You'd have to, you would basically have to model for that on some level. And so how, you just got,
1: you have to, you have to like connect this up to an international relations layer. Yes. And have the, inter- the internal bits of the polities, you know, scale up and have those games. Right. Because, because that, right is, saying, that is, that like, is kind of what's good about the war chapters is, right. you know, that is what happens.
0: They kind of, they kind of do that a little bit. Like, and they do. Again, they follow through the implications of their own theory in the sense that they, they do admit, like, yeah, democracies just do that. Like, you know, it's not fake democracy when you go and press like other countries. And oftentimes, democracies will directly choose to do this because there are incentives in place for them to do, to do so. Um, but it, it, I guess that what's, what creates a little mental dissonance reading it is when they then sort of turn around and argue for um, demanding political reform from small W coalition systems in exchange for like life-saving medicine <laughs> or like food in a, during a natural disaster. Well, if you know, if, if it was never in the interest of the larger systems to do that in the first place, why would they do that? It seems like you're just handing them like an excuse to, you know, to just let people starve. <laughs> like that's, that's what's so strange. Like some of their, Some of the the and you're right they do it less in this book than they do in the Dictator's Handbook. Although I do think that they there are some theoretical elaborations that happen in the Dictator's Handbook that maybe like paper over some of the problems that come to when it comes to examining some of like the you could say like actually existing democracies. um, That but you
1: you could you could could use some of the stuff like you know actual and real selectorate to talk about you know some of the problems of scale and hierarchy that they that they get at in this book like. Mm-hmm. yeah
0: like that's, that's what i'm saying i do want to talk a little bit about you know you know me like i've always i'm a fan of sortition let's minimize let's just minimize voting altogether and just make shit like jury duty you know what i mean um and that comes up at one point in their discussion and they, they talk a little bit about athens but they seem very like sortition skeptical because much of the same reason that they're actually in a, in a certain section i've didn't write down which one it wasn't in, in front of me but they talk about the problems that come with uh term limits right and how there are at towards the end of the term there's like massive incentives to be um essentially corrupt you know and, and just start acting like essentially um you know like a like a not like a dictator but like uh like somebody who's yeah
1: like uh, just doling out private you know private incentives and being primarily politically driven by keeping your winning coalition's like private goods intact more so than being invested in the public interest which, right you, you know do that recently you, with- this is this this happens in systems where they would otherwise be invested in the private interest because it's I'm sorry invested in the public interest and in provision of public goods because their electoral fate is tied to it but the the, the very presence of a term limit is weirdly like, gift to their kleptocratic like tendencies
0: right well you see this like with you see this like macron with the whole like forcing through like the pension reform you know because it's like okay might as as well might as well do this now they can't punish me for it you know which is literally just like a a massive giveaway to french capital right um and there's and there's
1: what 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 is he getting for that besides the ire of every french person
0: well, not every French person, you know, he's good. You know, <coughs> that's
1: true. I guess there are French capitalists and
0: they're global not, they're capital. Not
1: all, they're, they're not all like, you know, artists and, uh, you know, pa- partisans fighting in the hills in a Godard film.
0: Yeah. Now he gets to go to Davos or he gets to go on like some speaking tour and collect a half a million dollars for, per speech. You know what I mean? Like that's just furnishing all the, all the private benefits that you get on the back end when you get out of these things.
1: You think, you think he'll be run out of the country and he can like move to Miami?
0: Nah, I mean that would be funny though. That would that would be very that would be very he, funny. I don't know. He, he could be next to that
1: guy that, that was trying to be uh, he's trying to be president of um. Uh, I, I can't remember his name, though. Uh Juan Guaido. Guaido, yeah.
0: But also Bolsonaro had, for a while. And
1: Guaido could be neighbors. Oh yeah, Bolsonaro. He
0: was in or- he was just in Orlando. He was just living in or- in Orlando McMansion. Literally, wow. literally destroying the lungs of the earth to live the lifestyle of like a jet ski dealership owner. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's so banal. Uh,
0: yeah. Um. What was I going to say? Oh, I feel like with I feel like the French probably in some like former French colony is probably like their version of of like Florida Miami, where like all the reactionaries go to like you know live it up right. and probably do sex tourism stuff like that. But anyway, so. For a similar reason that they don't like term limits, or they see, I guess you could say, um, incentive-based problems with term limits, they also don't like sortition because nobody, there's no coalition behind you. So, what incentive do you have, uh, you know, to do the right thing? Um, but they point to a, you know, a place in Athenian democracy which had essentially a lot of, uh, a lot of things in place that safeguarded against this. They had a very complex system of government. Um, the people who were selected in sortition were selected um, with groups of people that they served with, and there was a lot of o- administrative overlap, so everybody was kind of watching what everybody did. There was also, um, within the popular assembly, there were like um, peri- like periodic uh, reviews and recalls that you could do of anybody you felt like, people felt like wasn't doing their job. There were legal reviews at the end of your term to make sure that you didn't you know steal anything you weren't corrupt or whatever um and i don't know like I, I to me like even they're they're uh pushing back on it a little bit i'm still i don't know i'm still sortition gang on this stuff because i feel like i feel like a lot of that essentially wipes all of this stuff away because it's like yeah the, like you basically do away with the coalition stuff but you have people who basically exist socially um you know within a polity and there's like checks and balances on everybody in this very like gamified structure. That's like designed to basically make your administrative, just that like an administrative job that like is answering to like a broader citizenry. I don't know. I was, I was looking it over. And it, it, lo- it looks like it, like that, that system like circumvents a lot of this shit. I don't know.
1: No, I like what they don't like. Cause I'm not just like a liberal. I think it's like, Okay that it's attached from, you know, the incentive structures of of like performance or something. I like the overlapping, uh, I think this is the Athenian structure, right? The overlapping sort of councils that sort of check each other's work. Um, like, you know, you, you probably just have to like fucking discuss it and, you know, make, you know, kind of like look into it so that people can, I guess mutual there is, you know, potential for mutually slacking off, I suppose. But if you have enough, I guess, I don't know. Yeah. I wonder how, I wonder how that like maps out. I wonder how many people have tried a you know, game theory of the Athenian constitution or something.
0: Yeah. um, Well, I was thinking about this, how like, um, because in some ways, like elections, like really are, the per- perfect for game theory as an as an approach because you know like the, it, there's the whole old like uh, game theoretical model of like um, you know two different people um, in isolation like making decisions about what to do that affects the other person you know and like that's kind of what like voting is right you go in a booth you're by yourself no one sees what you're doing you know? you
1: are you are the little Punnett square agent. Like you yeah. are the, 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 the sim, you know, and you have like two levers.
0: And so you can be out in the world like, you know, yes, in this house, black lives matter. Love is love, blah, blah, blah. And you can get in there and be like, I don't like taxes though. So fuck this shit. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> um, And it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Cause like I, I heard this guy talking about how like one of the problems with like when the Bernie campaign lost and they were like seeking concessions from the Democratic Party, One of the things they got rid of, um, wanted to ask to get rid of was caucuses in in favor of primaries, because primaries, you get more voters, so it's more democratic. But caucuses was where they always won, (laughs) like Bernie always won in the caucuses. And if you think about it, it's because in a caucus, you're there with a bunch of other people. You know, they see what you're doing. You're having a conversation and talking with people and making a decision together collectively, right? You're not in a booth or by yourself mailing something out in order to like, It is a structure that is like designed to maximize your own sense of self-interest, right? So I feel like, like at a molecular level, to get beyond like this game theoretical incentive structure, like you need democracy to be like a communal social activity.
1: Right, and instead of being this like isolated, you know, little punnett square rational actor activity, which, you know, I guess, you know, gets to our overall view of electoral activity which i you know sounds like we share that it's you know not the essence of democracy that it seems like and the fact that we're kind of hung up on elections as the standard of democracy just points to like how short the world has fallen of the lofty expectations of egalitarian projections and hopes mm-hmm. um and like but, you know, in a certain like rationalist sense, I guess, like if you know, or even in in an historical sense, if you want to appeal to the authority of Aristotle, if western if Western philosophy canon really matters to, you, like one of the finest minds, uh, you know, saw the quintessence of democracy, not as elections, which he you know, thought was or were aristocratic. Um, you know, he you know, saw the. Uh, she saw sortition as as you know essentially the, the building block of a democracy and in some sense, the fact that we are essentially having this like conversation between Hobbes and Machiavelli here you know should be fairly depressing for anyone to the left of Machiavelli. <laughs> <laughs> but you know this is essentially the conversation we're still having you know for better or for worse and unless we want it to go real bad, we have to engage with it. I don't know. I, I guess we could keep doing like irony poison like, uh, you know, dirtbag left stuff, <clears throat> maybe get some money from spiked, you know, like, I think the well on of that is going to drive Murdoch. You think so? No, man. I mean, there's, there's always people doing it. Seem bored with it now. The people doing it are like burned out husks of human beings. Now, like they're pretty, they're disturbing. Like, There's a part of, there's like a part of me that died years ago that feels bad for them. You know, like, it's, I don't feel it anymore, but I know that I would have felt bad for them (laughs) at some point. Yeah, I don't know. Talk about political incentive structures. I would really like, you know, some political incentive structure theory on the smaller scale for the kind of isolated, you know, activities that we do as media people um, because maybe there's like kind of similar generalizations that could be made uh, that would help orient sincere political actors, you know, egalitarians, communists that, you know, want to make the world better and need to know what to expect from media people. Cause I think I approached, commie media with like a pretty naively, you know, without much of a sense of how like deceptive people are like, and the way deception works online in particular, like in the sort of like debate strategy. Like I've, I've heard, there's like this video called the ship of Theseus that talks about how, you know, right-wing reactionaries can change a conversation by switching out the parts, like, and just introducing, you know, things bit by bit. And they sort of can, you know, transform a space into a reactionary space, and I think like the whole internet has like suffered from being you know terminally. On. Maybe it's just because they're online for three years, or God, I don't know. Um, I don't have any proximate explanations for this, but you know, the the intensification of brainworms, like political brainworms. I'm not saying it was ever really good, but like it seems to have hit a critical mass with the kind of Musk era of Twitter where like, I've always really thought of Twitter as pretty reactionary, even though it has had a sort of left-wing reputation. I had seen it turn a number of people pretty reactionary. Like, uh, and you know, I, I was thinking right reactionary for the most part, yes, there are Stalinists and stuff, but you know, it was really notable that there were like Nazis there for a while. I guess those people always existed. I think the evidence is kind of in that there are more Nazis now because of the Internet.
0: Well, yeah, because before it was basically turning like discourse into a candy crush game you play on your phone. So you can just imagine what the like negative incentives are. But now they basically essentially give in pay to win mechanics to like the dumbest, shittiest people on Earth. (laughs) Right. And so it sucks now. I mean, it sucked before, but it really sucks now.
1: It's yeah. The only thing that's better are those little warnings on like those little like political like community notes. check warnings. I love the, I love the community notes. Like it's usually on right wing content. There was like uh, one time there's a community notes on this guy who like Photoshopped his face and make himself look like a Chad. But you know, he, he had the classic, like he had all the classic, like features that people think look weak, of course. Um, and so they put a community note on on his page.
0: Yeah, I saw that.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, lovely. He, he face apped
0: um, himself. Yeah,
1: yeah, like, uh, and the um, which you know, of course, like I support, I support his uh, his right to get gender affirming face surgery. Um,
0: well, I mean, as far as media goes, like as soon as my screenplay gets picked up, I'm fucking done with this podcasting shit. Like, that's yo, it.
1: do it, do like. All my favorite as, like podcasters are like just you know waiting for that screenplay to pop off.
0: As soon as my Star Wars sequel rewrites get put through, right? Like as soon as Dave and John like get rid of that bitch and uh, remove Lucasfilm oh, yeah? from her controlling oh, grip. God. See, right now oh, Lucasfilm God. is a small this, this... W coalition system, right? Like you yeah. basically have <laughs> a cabal like, of Kathleen Kennedy of Kathleen and a handful Kennedy. of SJWs. Oh, who, uh-huh. are keep, who are trying to keep... Who are trying to keep out... <laughs> See, John and Dave, they want to make it into a large W true, Coalition system. For the true gamers. Right? The, yeah, for the fans. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, like, on, with them, the fans will be the winning Coalition. And they'll pick up my thing. <laughs> uh, my, my rewrites that are based upon the original treatments as I basically uh-huh. read them in a 4chan thread. Um, they haven't been officially okay. published yet, but based on everything I know from reading the expanded universe, like it actually tracks yeah. pretty close. So okay, so will be ready George to go. And then, drops. you know, I can basically, yeah. you know, hopefully like this writer strike will, you know, convince a lot of people to not be writers in Hollywood anymore. So I can like have a better chance to get in there. Um, but you know. yeah,
1: that's definitely what I thought when I saw writer strike is. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I hope a bunch of them quit. Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 a communist thought um anyway. that's crazy There's just shakes in the news shit i don't know like
0: i remember the I one say. from 2008 um yeah and like,
1: yeah i guess there was th- yeah there, there have been like fairly high profile writer strikes every 20 years
0: well and and you know like apparently like the thing that kicked it off was uh they basically they thought like the guild thought they could get like an easy concession if they're like oh yeah and uh, no AI stuff unless it's done under the supervision of like a guild writer and that killed the negotiations the studios walked and it's like oh shit that's where we are okay
1: I, they called it I guess because
0: if you think about it like the this the a, AI scriptwriter for the producer is like the perfect thing because like what they can what how oh, they always talk about movies oh it's like uh, Top Gun meets Sex in the City. You know, and, and that's their elevator pitch to everything. It's like you just put that into a thing and then it'll spit out a script and it'll be like, um, this is great. Write a part for my niece because my niece is trying to be an actress, you know? <laughs> and then it'll just put her part in for his niece, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like that's what they want. Look,
1: look, this is the future. Like I I respect people trying to keep dignity for their profession, you know? But mm. like, I think it's fairly unlikely that, you know, the government or whatever actor that's capable of intervening will intervene successfully. No. It, 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 no. It, like, the fact that the studios walked, when the studios, you know, if the studios, the studios could have cooperated in a way where they phase it in over, you know, a period of years, basically. Like, um, I wonder if the unions would have went along with that. I think a lot of unions like would have essentially, because it would be in their short medium term interests, maybe not their long-term interests. Like anyway, like those days are gone. Those days yeah. of class compromise are gone. Like, sorry, compact Mac. Like,
0: yeah, you know. look, tripartism was never going to happen in this, in this place. No, sir.
1: Yeah. So I use this. getting, uh, us getting rid of all the guns, you know, culturally. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I wonder what, I wonder what the uh, Hobbesian index is, you know? Did you catch that one of the metrics was radios per square meter? Because he's trying to figure out, like, nasty, brutal, solitary, and short. Which, one, I never remember solitary in that quote. Radios? Like, that seems very time-bound.
0: Oh, yeah. that's. I mean, I guess now... I guess now it would be, like, cell phones, it's I smart, suppose.
1: Smart phones, Smartphones. Smartphones.
0: And, yeah. And, and once they got those into and Africa, everything got better. Can you believe it?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it definitely makes you feel less existentially alone, doesn't it? Yeah. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? No, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if that's, like, a good measure of solitary. I mean, I don't know what's a better proxy. It's cute, though. It's very cute to turn, like, an old classical, like, you know, political science quote into an index like that. Like. It's pretty, it's very cheeky. Like, do we scale or do we have like a low Hob scale by this measure? Even though, you know, we have like elementary school shootings every month.
0: Yeah, I guess, I guess you'd have to see how this updates for the, the contemporary reality.
1: Cause I do kind of feel like the, the sort of part of the intangible difference of being in like a different country is kind of feeling The level of, you know, subsistence and like social, just the social expectations, cultural expectations, like sort of economic expectations of everyone around you. Like that's part of that thing that's maybe overall intangible, but you can kind of grasp little corners of it here and there, like that of what it's like to be somewhere else. You just went to like three different countries, right? You know what I'm talking about
0: yeah yeah I mean the, f- the future's in the east I think honestly that's what I that was my takeaway.
1: yeah you visited London uh,
0: okay. Paris to- and Tokyo to-
1: Paris and Tokyo yeah okay and Tokyo by a mile
0: Oh yeah not yeah not even close.
1: You were happy to go back to Florida when you were in Eng- uh, England yeah that's how bad it was
0: yeah i was like you know what actually where i'm from is not that bad but when i was in tokyo i was like i gotta go back to that shithole like this is another like this is a whole different world (laughs) like
1: yeah it's how i felt in Barcelona for sure yeah i mean tokyo is probably more impressive but like i just want to i just want to grill you know what i mean i just want to like kick it by the beach and like smoke legal weed and you know
0: well, they, they actually they actually talk in, in this piece about, you know, how the motivations behind emigration and revolution are very similar. Yeah. Uh,
1: and when people try to use voice in the society and they can't, they leave. I
0: and mean, that's how we even that's how we got like the sort of traces of like Midwestern, like sewer socialism, social democracy, you know, that we have is the, the Germans, you know, basically were like this isn't going to work here, you know, ended up in the Midwest. That's how you're even getting probably a little bit of the, um, you know, a little bit of the based uh, slight majority holding Democrats in the Midwest right now, like passing, you know, passing welfare shit at a state level.
1: Yeah. And like the. uh, The pro trans stuff, of you know, minority of like, you know, this is a trans refuge state kind of laws that are being put forward here and there. As a sort of similar move to, you know, enshrining abortion in the state constitution or something. Yeah. Uh, Which, you know, again, if the Democrats were like a, you know, proper Leninist party, like they tried to restructure themselves around in the sixties, they would do, they would follow their program. Like they would try to implement their own program. They, you know, wouldn't leave it to like, I don't know, fascists that would package one of their part of their program with, you know, a bunch of, of their nightmares.
0: I was I think about I was thinking about this framework a little bit, looking at Desantis and how, on some level, I, I, I kind of misread him a little bit because, in terms of his ability to really do politics, for instance, one thing he's been doing here in Florida is basically trying to fight woke capital, which basic which means Disney and universities. For instance, he basically destroyed. I destroy, but he, he for both Disney and universities, he set up these appointed governor appointed boards that he can staff with cronies. And the job of these boards is to basically act as like clerics who oversee them and make sure that they're not being too woke or whatever. It's also kind of similar to the, um, the university uh, military people that were set up under Pinochet in Chile um, after the coup. And I thought, like, this was a sign that, like, this guy really knows how to do politics. Like, he's basically uh, creating, like, patronage system to, like, reward cronies. And he's, like, subordinating, like, these large economic institutions to his own personal interests. The thing is, none of that's really working. Like, he hasn't really, like, strengthened his own loyalty norm with anybody. You know, in fact, it's the opposite. A lot of times people meet him and just immediately turn around and endorse Trump, (laughs) he seems when he's talking to people outside of like a anything, but like a press conference, like he seems like he's maybe on the spectrum or something, or he's like, he has maybe like some kind of social anxiety disorder. Like he's, he's, he's got like Al Gore sub Al Gore levels of like being personable. Um, But also like the cultivation of affinity, which is something we didn't really talk a lot about in terms of the framework of this text is also another major thing. And some, and a major part of, Building power for yourself as a political actor. And it's one that he just does not seem to be good at, like, at all. (laughs) Like it's a thing he's completely neglected. And you can even see, and this isn't so much related to his framework, but like with the Disney stuff, he doesn't seem to understand. He doesn't he's he's trying to play the Trump game, but he doesn't just understand how to do it. Like, Like Trump, if he was gonna do if he was gonna try to basically subordinate Disney. He could have done the thing where you basically remove their special status where they're a country within a country and say that that's why you're doing it. Like a private company shouldn't be allowed to essentially have its own city state within the country. Like they have to be subject to the law like every other business. And then what you do is you let your QAnon psychos and you let all your little Internet theorists and detectives uh, decide that you're doing that because you're you're trying to get the tunnels that traffic children under Disney, you know, you're trying to stop the grooming or whatever, you let them fill in all the gaps for you. And that way Disney can't sue you for first amendment violations. Cause you wrote in your book that you were upset with their free speech stance, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, like all those kind of like little unforced errors suggest to me that I, I was concerned that he was like a version of Trump that actually knew how to do politics at like a theoret- game theoretical level. Like we're talking about here. Because like Trump would always try and do cronyism too, but it was always like ticky tacky shit like you know, like making the making this making the Secret Service pay to stay at his hotels and, and shit like that. Yeah,
1: it's not it's he's not the Protestant Franco that uh Twitter's hoping for. <laughs> yeah. I like the anecdote about Franco and Hitler. In fact, I like how much the fascist leaders hated each other. Do you remember the anecdote like about I actually don't. Hi- Hitler saying that he'd rather get his uh, teeth pulled out than with Franco again.
0: Oh, um, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 that sounds familiar.
1: Yeah, because uh, they couldn't agree on Frank um, on Spain's entrance into World War II. Um, oh. So
0: Franco just walked. <laughs> that's uh, that's actually pretty funny because how much aid he got from those guys, like he—that's basically uh-huh. half the reason he won that war. And then to just be like, actually, no, I'm yep. good.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hitler.
2: Felt
0: honestly, honestly, rare Franco W. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I, well, well,
1: that's the unfortunate thing about political science literature, and and you know, putting ethics aside and trying to have a descriptive, scientific, whatever detachment from your subject matter is You do eventually have to say, Wow. There's Riz at work here. Like, <laughs> this person knows what they're doing, um, or at the very least, stumbled into, you know, the right answer here.
0: Speaking of Riz, I did. I saw. I Hitler. I did see this clip of um, Orson Wells. He was on Dick Cavett, and he was like, um, uh,
2: I, w- "I was uh, being escorted. This I went twice through the through the Tyrol and uh, Austrian German." Uh, hiking country, once mm-hmm. with, a, with one teacher and once with another. And one of the, the two teachers was, it turned out, a, a, a sort of a budding Nazi. And there was a big Nazi rally in, near Innsbruck. In the days when the Nazis were just a, a very comical, kind of minority party of nuts that nobody took seriously at all, mm-hmm. except my hiking companion, this uh, gentleman in his knapsack, and he wangled a place at the table with the great men of this tiny little party of cranks. And uh, I remember very well afterwards, uh, Stryker was the leader of the big anti-Semitic campaigns and uh, uh, two or three other well-known people to this day. The man sitting next to me was Hitler and I, he made so little impression on me that I can't remember a second of it. Gee. He had no personality whatsoever. Wonder if under he hyp- was invisible. I wonder if under hypnosis it would come out. do you? No, I think there was nothing there that uh-huh. anybody'd remember. Did you had 5,000 people yelling, seek Heil, yeah. Heil Hitler. That's the whole point of the story that there wasn't anything. You
0: close. know, he's like, you and need- He's
2: just a forgettable face. You just look at
1: him and you just forget him.
0: Yeah, like, he, you, you need to have all the- there's
1: no object permanence.
0: Well, and, that will, and keep in mind, this was like you know before he, you know, Hitler kind of ruined the the toothbrush tooth. Was it was a toothbrush toothbrush mustache, yeah, toothbrush mustache. Um, that was still like a thing people that was like a still an acceptable fashion or facial grooming choice for men at the time. Was uh, it
1: was is, is this like the fedora? Is this the fedora tragedy? Kind of, Is this of, the yeah. tragedy to the fedora farce? Is that what we're talking about?
0: Yeah, in spite of like the noble effort of Michael Jordan to take it back in in those like I think it was Haynes commercials, uh, it's it's still that mustache is still still off the table. But yeah, I, apparently I like, like yeah, you just, I
1: like the the black nationalist reason for yeah, rocking the Hitler stuff. I mean, I I feel like Michael but Jordan like, was I mean, like,
0: if if anybody yeah. can do this, it's me. <laughs> and maybe maybe if he was doing it while well, he was still getting rings, you know, when he was still on the bowls. Right. It might yeah, have, it he, might he have worked. Got but...
1: away with it more. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say, Michael Jordan looks better with a stash than Hitler ever did.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, well, I think that's I think we I think we covered it.
1: <laughs> we I mean, we really could go in more into, you know, like the feces of chapter 9. Chapter 9 is nice because it it summarizes everything into into theses that it, you know, provides argumentation for throughout. That's the uh, endogenous changes chapter. Um, You know, like, probably one of the most, that's probably, I would say, one of the more interesting, like, models in the whole thing in the sense of, you know, what it says about democracy and imperialism. And should just be a part of it should be, you know, probably incorporated into future like political economy of imperialism. And I kinda wonder how it would interact with some, you know, attempts to do political economy of imperialism. Um, like how do the categories of disenfranchised versus like disenfranchised versus like Selectorate seems to be something that should be teased apart. I don't think it is in this book. I think disenfranchised are people that aren't in the there's there's like a specific way of defining it. I think I forget. I I don't wanna like very exact in this book. I don't want to like misrepresent them. Here's the thing about the Electoral College. I just remember it being really unsatisfactory.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And well they talk about it shortly after they discuss um patronage networks, I believe. And they do basically advocate to get rid of it. So I think that's a pretty, it's a pretty bare minimum.
1: Yeah. It's, ba- yeah, it's totally bare minimum, but like, but they said it would be marginal because it's already a large coalition system. Right. And, you know, you know, in so- in a strict sense, it definitely like behaves like it sometimes, but it doesn't behave like it all the time. What would selectorate theory? If he did a case study of the United States, um, which is a good thing, you know, to do, I guess, with the world hegemon, if you're building a, you know, grand theory of politics, is, you know, apply it to one of the more influential countries. It's, that is a very centric way to do things. But, like, if you're talking causality, the one that's, like, you know, has the ability and the willingness to project force and, you know, project economic influence with the United States does, is, you know, the logical place to start. Maybe you could start from the least powerful country or, you know, just the country you're in. But all the same, Turchin did this with, you know, Peter Turchin's own formalization of politics and instability and that kind of thing. So, you know, it's sort of a significant overlap, except this has the sort of neoliberal angle on immigration being, you know, a net positive, where Turchin tends to focus on the destabilizing effects of immigration. I don't know. I could I could
0: run through I mean yeah that's fine if you want to pull if you want to pull because we didn't really like look closely at like any of these models really we've kind of talked in general terms um mostly because I didn't look closely at the models I mean you know obviously I read the explications that exist in the chapter but I didn't really like you know not really look too much at what's under the hood I don't know if you, if you if there's anything that stuck out to you there or if you got a chance to look at any of that stuff
1: yeah I did look at it but you know <laughs> yeah. Like, even, even when I could really, like, parse it and, you know, follow it and, you know, follow the rationale, like, I'm not sure what to say about it. Like, oh, this is a really creative use of this theorem. What, you've never heard of this theorem? You don't know what a theorem is. Like, there's just, like, a, like, there's too much to unpack sometimes. That's, um, that's, that's fair. You know, I don't know how necessary it always is to have jargon and, like, specific definitions for shit, but. I think, you know, math is probably the place. And once you start doing that, you build up a lot of shit. It's a whole, you know, specialist language. And so this book is I don't know, pretty readable. Um, if you don't try to read the math, like, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm writing mathematical proofs right now. And I find these proofs pretty intimidating, in part just because the form they're formatted fucking terribly. They're like those memes that have, like, no space Like, in you know, just a leftist block of just text. You know what I mean? Like, I, myself, like a nicely formatted meme, and I know it makes... Nicely formatted meme. Nicely formatted proof, if you're doing symbolic proofs. Uh, It makes a book longer and more expensive, and I guess Oxford, whoever the fuck, is not paying for that. There's a suggestion in, uh, in the section about coups that coups by their definition um, exp- expand the electorate or or at least they tend to was that a result or was that an assumption like I felt like when I was reading it I felt like it was an assumption but like it's a very strange assumption and of course we're talking about internal coups like um, when, when they're talking about um, you know types of political transformations of a regime um, protests such as, like, demonstrations, strikes, riots, um, or, you know, like, political violence or, you know, civil war, revolution. Those are the ways that disenfranchised, who I, I, you know, yeah, the disenfranchised, who I think are outside the selectorate, I don't remember, get this book today. And look it up and let me know. <laughs> and uh,
0: yeah. I, I don't remember where they said that. And I, th- I, I and maybe it has something to do with the fact oh, that um,
1: well, they they start bringing it in later, and I you know I just I'm like uh, okay.
0: Well, I wonder if it has something to do with the, that they point out that the coup d'etats will tend to come from like the office, the lower officers, and not from generals who are already getting paid, are already paid up.
1: Yeah, and so what I was building up to there, yes, is that the the winning coalition is the source of coups and it's generally people you know according to them not sure if this is an assumption or result um tends to be if there's going to be like a, a coup it's to expand the winning coalition yeah Which, that, I i don't know how that follows maybe
0: so well they spend a lot of time in this book talking about um the incentive structures for loyalty and disloyalty to a ruling regime and how they have to basically weigh weigh the potential benefits of either going to a defector or yeah, doing a coup or supporting a revolution or basically any challenger to power, let's say, and weigh those against the continued benefits that they're currently getting. I don't remember what the exact reasoning was for that statement there. Maybe it has something to do with that, that curve that I was talking about earlier where there's the valley um of coalition of winning coalition expansion where things get worse for those within um within the winning coalition as the Fran- as the coalition expands but then it it starts to tip and go up later so maybe the people who are receive less benefits within the winning coalition have more of an incentive to expand it because their absolute or relative level of status won't be as diminished as, as much as those more in the inner circle I, I don't know you have the you other. Like actually, I want EPUB, so there's no way to sync up pages on that. So I won't. Never mind. That is the downside to EPUB. It's it's very re- the pagination is very relativized. Oh,
1: the pagination is is totally like chaotic with EPUB. Otherwise, it's pretty cool. But you know, big big PDF. I like the the margins. I never write in margins of real books. I can't dare nah. to defile them. But I love writing in the margins of a PDF with like a digital tablet or something Mm -hmm. because you could always erase it because it's not, it's not really there. Let's see. I think probably the thing that I like the most about this book, and I might've said this last time, but I think it bears repeating if I did, is that this book actually does follow through on trying to generalize about the class interests of people with relation to the state it's a weird kind of class interest it's not spoken about in terms of class but I think it's very if anyone's ever really thought about like economic categories and you know the kind of you know rationality norm of economics it's pretty I I guess it's just sort of like an intuitive thing to me that Classes are kind of bound by having some sort of common interest structure. And that's what makes a class what it is like. um, uh, You know, in order to make things like a little less like culturally like variant, like, oh, man, you know, Starbucks workers, they work, you know, like all this like fucking dog shit. All this like narrative noise that absolutely doesn't help you understand the world at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you could kind of, again, this is real ideal, like bong rep science shit, but hear me out, right? Like, if you could kind of, you know, derive the structure, the proletarian, like, you know, interest structure, and like, just kind of, uh, you know, if if you understand that interest structure, like, you can use that as a design principle, Whenever you're dealing with collective action problems, at least as a place to start, because in this one, you know, each each actor has their motivations and you can generalize about what they want. According to the model. And again, you know, the model has like different classes of people depending on the relationship to the leader or the, you know, are they the leader? Are they not the leader? (laughs) Are they in the winning coalition? Are they outside of the winning coalition? Are they inside the selectorate? Are they outside of the selectorate? Yeah, it has that. And like, that's not, that's not like, that's not too bad of, um, and oh yeah. And it generalizes like about their interests. So I don't know. Class theory should be doing this this is a good part of economic theory <laughs> you should do this with class it's the closest thing you can get to objective class interests y- you know um you're not going to be able to capture everything that's important in class interests or in politics in mathematics or like interest structures or something but like it's probably it, it, it can't hurt it can't hurt like look at it <laughs> like i don't know if it would be more mystifying than the endless chatter we have about it. I really doubt it. Like, I, don't, I doubt it would be more mystifying. Like, it would probably be helpful.
0: Well, they kind of get close to it in their section on revolution where they talk about, um, again, we, sort of like how I talked about the logic of those within the winning coalition in terms of uh, what, are the, what are the incentive structures that would lead them to break or not break with the ruling regime. You'd probably have to look at what are, what would the preconditions be for the working class that we have as it exists to undertake you know the project of essentially like making revolution against the current regime and they 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 just don't really talk about that here but i see how you could probably game that out if you had if you had some of the you know some of the factors in, laid out
1: Oh, yeah. And we didn't even talk about, like, the purge stuff here. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, there's, you know, there's a model about, you know, it is related to the the curve, the graph curve that you were talking about, about whether the winning coalition has an interest in expanding itself or not. Yeah, I don't know. It does get pretty close. It does get pretty close to that sort of, you know, tantalizing promise of, you know, objective you know, political economic science, but for the most part, Marx is like critiquing, but there's, you know, that strain of him that he's like kind of hoping to, he's kind of hoping to crack the Da Vinci code. And he also, you know, he provides reasons for thinking it's maybe impossible to do that kind of thing. But also like, I don't know. it, You know, it, it beats just like, it beats just like, you know, Twitter discourse, right? Like it's gotta, it's gotta be a better guide to the world than that. That's not, that's not, You know, it's damning a faint praise. Maybe maybe I'm like underselling my point. I feel like, you know
0: you don't you don't don't want to talk about whether it's okay for uh, disabled people to eat frosted flakes when there's a Kellogg strike? You don't think that's important?
1: Rip them the (laughs) headlines.
0: You don't want to talk about which races are allowed to date. That's not I don't think that's a good use of anybody's time. (laughs) Oh man.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I you know I I don't know what I don't have that much of a problem with like uh, the ethics of, you know, what critical theory is supposed to be, but you know, some of the inherited irrationalism is like not helping us right now. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, combining the emancipatory ethics of the best critical theory with, uh, you know, trying to like sharpen our minds about what the fuck to do because shit's getting, you know, pretty dire, pretty quickly. And like, even if we can't do it, like, I don't know. I think, I think it's just it's worth a shot, right? Like we we can think about it. We can, we're allowed to think about it. We could think about it. Like we could try to, you know, generalize and abstract about it. At some point I would like to try to like build this model in like code or something and really understand it. Cause y- you don't really understand something like this when you're just fucking like, all right, this is a bunch of fucking, you know, Jesus, like, I forgot what, you know, Q subscript X means. Like, and you have to go back and find it.
0: You could probably There's work that some... into what you're doing, right? That could be like a project for something, right?
1: Yeah, maybe. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, this is this is probably a better place to start than uh, Peter Turchin's more zoomed out historical materialist-like. S- sort of historical materialist-like, but, you know, is uh,
0: church is, is that the germs, guns, and steel guy? Is that I'm thinking of
1: no, that's Jared Diamond. Uh, okay. I think I think Turchin's account of prehistory might be quote prehistory, might be okay. um inspired by Diamond though. And
0: okay, other, one of the like, like, are and, and
1: and other you know evolutionary historians.
0: Okay. Oh yeah, right, right, right. Okay, Turchin got it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, he's, he's the guy with the um a lot of the PMC theorists like him. Yeah,
0: you know, okay. like the right way. oh yeah, uh, Mr Mr. Elite Overproduction.
1: Yes, yeah. that's him. These people have like a you know, assigned class interest at birth theory, like Stalin did when you know, when it comes to like Starbucks workers that know a lot about Deleuze or something like mm-hmm. it's they're now they're a starbucks worker like they're a worker like get over it like...
0: yeah there's just a tendency to just as- associate you know associate worker with like manual labor basically um and anything that isn't like swinging a- anything that isn't like pushing a- like you know swinging a pick or shovel or, or you know digging a shovel or something anything that isn't that doesn't count you know
1: right I mean like standing around an operating machine you know might not seem like hard work but like you're doing it all the time. It sucks. Like, and, and you have to interact with the customers. Like, it's really two two separate skills. Like, like you know, they just, don't just overlap naturally. Like, yeah. Completely different skill sets. Well,
0: and there's a gender thing there too, where yeah, you're doing like I guess emotional labor, and that doesn't count for some reason.
1: Right. Yeah. It's it's a it's a tip profession. Well. Yeah, being,
0: so, being a working you know, class man been. is coming home and being, I slave away all day at the factory. <laughs> and all I ask is that I have a hot meal on the table. You know. Yeah, What do you this do all day but hang out with your friends and chirp? You know? That's what that's being, yeah. being a worker is.
1: Yeah, I mean, guys either, like, in construction or, like, uh... He's like actually a ninety-five pound like Reddit engineer that works at the factory because he, he's the machine minder from Marx's fragment on machines. Obviously, he's taking you know supplements to get that place.
0: Well, that's it for this time. And uh, yeah, I don't really have any outro-, outro notes this time. I don't really have any follow-ups. Here, how are you doing? You doing good? Hmm. You keeping busy? It's too much of that. Too much of that, if you ask me. Too much of, uh, but you're keeping busy, you know? We're busy all the time, but not even really productive, you know, always on your damn phone. You're worried like maybe COVID like destroyed your brain You don't even like realize it. You know, it's like the second half of the book, "Flowers for Algernon," where he goes from being normal to not normal. Like this happens in that book. I've never actually read it. I've mostly just absorbed it through um, sitcom. And cartoon episodes that parodied it. So, but I think you know, it seems like the gist of it's pretty clear. All right. Well, anyway. Till next time. Keep your keep your boots clean your feet out of the swamp and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.